Hey, this is Anthony Benning. You're listening to Fear the Sword Podcast. Welcome everyone, my name is Trevor Magnotti and this is the Thick Jacked Frames Podcast, Fear the Swords NBA Draft Podcast. 2019 NBA Draft is 15 weeks away now and your Cleveland Cavaliers are set to pick 3rd and 24th as we record today on Thursday morning. The Rockets have won 6 straight games, which certainly puts a damper on how good the Cavs' second pick is going to look. So we're going to focus instead today on the Cavs' first pick. Heard a lot of questions and chatter about the Cavs' doomsday scenario lately at the top of the draft. After all, the team is actually playing with some sort of pulse since Kevin Love returned, and it helps that Chetty Osman looks like he's turned into t- prime Chason Prince as well. That has Cavs fans wondering, what does the team do if they end up picking in the inevitable spot of 5th or 6th or even 7th with the new lottery odds? Over the next couple weeks, we're going to focus on options for that spot in the Prospect of the Week segment, starting with today. But first, it's been a couple weeks since we hit NBA draft news, so we're going to touch on two quick items first. The first is Zion Williamson's injury, which I'm sure you know happened in the Blue Devils' first game against North Carolina a couple weeks ago. He tried to make a uh, move with the ball at the free throw line, slipped on the court, and suffered a knee sprain. He's been out since, and that has some people worried about his potential injury risk. But this seems like a pure business decision to me. Zion clearly is thinking about his future, as is the rest of his inner circle, and honestly, probably Duke is too, because they can still win games without him in the regular season, and they definitely want the clout of having another number one pick in the arms race against Kentucky. The injury Zion suffered isn't typically one that shelves players for very long, nor is it one that requires surgery, nor is it one that leads to future issues down the line. In fact, I wrote about Zion's injury risk at the step back last week if you want to read exactly how that's the case. That he hasn't been playing is probably a sign that he's taking his rehab seriously and preparing for the games that matter, for Duke, the NCAA tournament, and then for the NBA draft combine. We'll see if he comes back, but it's very likely that he's going to look very similar to who he was earlier in the year when he does eventually come back to play. The other piece of news is that the NBA has formally proposed to change the age minimum from 19 down to 18 for the NBA draft. This happened a couple weeks ago, and it was a long time coming, as they've been talking about it for quite some time, almost since the last lockout. I'm conflicted on where I stand on this, because while college is a broken system that takes advantage of the players and puts a lot of the draft prospects in situations that are totally unfavorable to them, high school evaluation is incredibly difficult. There's a huge talent deficit, and really it's tough to get a good read for players that are coming out of high school. This year is a good example of that. Prior to this year, I was sold on Nasir Whittle as the number two guy in the class behind R.J. Barrett, and at Zion, number three. Whoops, doesn't look like that's the way that things have ended up, and part of that is because it's so difficult to get a read on how these players look compared to what they're going to look like at a higher talent level. I think we'd run into that again going back into a straight jump from high school. Ultimately, I'd like to see a little bit more of a plan for how teams are going to protect the high school kids that do come out from failing in the ways guys like Kwame Brown did. We'll see how the players' union responds. Maybe it's a situation where teams take an approach similar to what the Portland Trailblazers are doing with Anthony Simons this year. 
Or maybe it's something where we get the option of finally having a baseball or hockey-like system where guys can either come straight out and go into the G League or they can go into college for two years. We'll see what ends up coming from that, but it's looking like it's going to be an interesting next couple months in terms of what the long-term prospects of the NBA draft are going to look like. We'll take a short break now, and when we come back, we'll talk about our prospect of the week, our first guy that could be in play for the Cavs at the 5th, 6th, or 7th spot, Cam Reddish. All right, we're back to talk about one of the Cavs' options if they end up in the back half of the top five, Cam Reddish at Duke. He's the third star for the Blue Devils behind R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson, and he's projected as a top five pick at pretty much all of the major outlets. However, many draft scouts are starting to drop him, myself included. He's going to be 10th on my newest big board, which is going to come out at the beginning of this week at the step back. So let's get into why that is and why he may not be the best option for the Cavs if they're picking fourth or fifth. Reddish is six foot eight and weighs 218 pounds and has about a six foot nine, six foot ten wingspan. His stats: he averages 29.2 minutes, 14.0 points. 3.7 rebounds, 2.1 assists, and 1.7 steals per game. He shoots 36% from the field, 34% from three, and 30 or and 76% from the line, and averages 7.8 three-point attempts per game, which puts him on the higher end of three-point shooters at the college level. Your representative game to see everything that's right and wrong with Reddish's skill set is the Duke game against Pittsburgh. He had 15 points on 4-16 shooting, 6 rebounds, 4 assists, and 2 steals. And you get to see a little bit of him as a playmaker and a lot of him as a spot-up shooter and uh, defensive prospect. So this is a really good game for that. Let's get into our breakdown with offensive strengths. The biggest strength that everyone points to is his shooting, and that's where I agree as well. I think that his spot-up mechanics are probably the best part of his game. He has a very consistent and fluid motion. He gets into his shot very quickly when he gets the ball off the catch, and while his three-point percentage isn't where you'd want it in terms of value, you know, at 34%, you'd like to see him ideally around like 36, 37. He is shooting at a pretty high volume. And when you combine his volume with his mechanics, I think that it presents a pretty good picture of what he's going to be as a three-point shooter at the next level. He also has some ball handling capabilities. He's a pretty good drive and kick passer. And I think that's going to project pretty well as a passer within an offense at the NBA level. He does a really good job of finding players in the corners when he gets into the teeth of the defense, and he does pretty good on pick and pops as well. And he has decent step-back mechanics, which is nice. He gets into the shot very well. He creates step uh, space very well with his hop, hop back and step back, and he's able to get up into his jumper pretty quickly after he makes the step-back move. So those are all very enticing things as well. And he's also a pretty good off-ball cutter. I like his ability to attack the rim off of closeouts, and he does a pretty good job getting to the rim along the baseline. All things that you want to see from a guy who's a potential spot-up guy in the corner. You want to be able to have that attack if the defense falls asleep or is forced to rotate. And he does a pretty good job with that when the defense is focused on the other players in Duke's offense. 
Offensive weaknesses, though, really paint a picture of a guy who's not going to be as good of a primary scorer as people are really billing him up to be. The big weakness for him is his handle. He does not do a very good job of creating space with his uh, dribbling ability. He loses the ball a lot when he's driving, doesn't protect it very well, and really only has a few simple dribble moves that he likes to go to, particularly a spin move in the lane um, and a little in and out dribble that really isn't that strong. So there's not a lot of creation upside I think to his game because he really doesn't have that handle and he's going to be very turnover prone if he's given a lot of possessions on ball similarly concerning is his finishing and that's the main reason that I've dropped him in the last couple weeks Reddish is scoring 40.4 percent on two-point jumpers at the college level and the list of guys who have done that in college and gone on to be drafted, it's not a very exciting list. It includes guys like Jerry and Grant and Spencer Dinwiddie and Fred Van Vliet. Those are kind of the best outcomes for guys who do that at the college level. And none of those guys are six foot eight like Reddish is. Reddish should be a very good finisher. It really doesn't make sense how he's not. Um, he ha- He has the upper body strength. He has a little bit of touch. Um, he is able to get to the rim, and that and that's good despite his pretty poor handle. But he just doesn't do a very good job of sensing where ball handlers or where defenders are going to come from when they rotate over, and that leads to a pretty a pretty negative finishing profile. It's going to be really interesting to see if this is just a factor of Duke's offense and a factor of his role and his dissatisfaction with it, or if this is going to be a real problem for him at the next level. Because if it is, he has a long way to go before he's even playable as a potential ball handler. And the other offensive weakness I have is that just kind of goes along with the other two things. He's not a very refined player on offense. You know, he has simple spot up mechanics, but he doesn't do a lot of shooting off movement. He can make simple passes in the pick and roll, but he doesn't make advanced reads. He has a good step back, but doesn't really have other dribble moves that can create space off the dribble. Doesn't have a good handle. Doesn't have a good finishing. There's just not a lot of polish on the offensive end for him. On one hand, that could mean that he has a lot more upside that we're not seeing. On the other end, it makes it really difficult to see how he's going to have value on a rookie contract as an offensive player. So it's going to be interesting to see if that's something that teams recognize during the pre-draft prospect, particularly in workouts. Does he have skills that he's not able to show right now for whatever reason, whether it's his... Um, whether it's his frame, his strength, or just his lack of handle that really cripples things. I'm not as sold on Reddish as an offensive player as I am as a, on him as a defensive player. I kind of have the opposite view on Reddish that I did coming into the year. Coming into the year, he looked like a much more polished offensive player. Defensively, he looked like a total mess and looked like he was going to take significant development there. Now, I think that he could actually have some defensive value as a rookie. 
Particularly, I like his reaction time on defense. Reddish has one of the highest steal rates of any of the players that are considered top 10 prospects at a 3.2 steal rate. Anything over two is something that we set as kind of a baseline. If a guy's going to become a star, they have to have at least a two steal rate in college to really be able to make it as a defensive player that can make, reach a star level. Pretty much every star in the NBA today hit that benchmark. So the fact that Reddish is so far ahead of that and has the eye test things to back that up is really exciting. He has really quick hands. He has a great reaction time to events as they happen on defense. Um, he's able to tie up ball handlers very well in the open court, which is always something that's very exciting. Means that he could be a point of attack defender on an aggressive scheme, I think. And he combines that with a really solid frame and agility, which leads to believe that this is a guy that could switch across multiple positions in the NBA. You know, he has a 6'8 frame and is, is pretty strong, so he could do a pretty good job against threes and fours at the NBA level, has the agility to be able to defend on ball as well. The main problems with his defense are kind of those refinement things that most freshmen deal with. You know, he doesn't make very good closeouts. He kind of runs past the offensive player as he's closing out, and that can lead to open looks for that player and ease, ease for that guy to get around him. And also his effort level off ball is particularly a little bit concerning. Um, he's a guy that just kind of falls asleep on, on the defensive end away from the ball. And while he's able to defend the weak side when he's engaged, when a team's running a complex action that involves everybody on the floor and he has to keep himself moving, he does a pretty good job and can actually defend multiple players in that situation. But in the more basic rudimentary college thing, uh, college sets where he's defending a guy in the corner or he's defending a guy on the weak side wing and the, that's just standing there, he can kind of get lost and it's easy for him to get slipped by his opponent. So I think that that's something that is going to have to develop, but it's something that a lot of M NBA wings do develop to be able to become at least passable, especially if they have the physical tools. Reddish definitely has those, has the on-ball production. I think that he's going to be a guy that is going to be a good NBA defender at a baseline. So projection, I have him as a switch defender across multiple position, probably one through four. I don't know that he's going to be able to play, you know, potentially defending fives at the NBA level. He could eventually get there with strength, but I don't know that he has the the attention span and the high end strength to be able to do that. I think that he can do it on switches, but probably not full time. Um, offensively, I think that he's best as probably a volume spot up shooter, a guy that is taking a lot of corner threes and open threes off the catch, um, but doesn't really do a ton outside of those spot up opportunities. So that kind of sets a um, a scale of what he could be. I think the floor for him is as a guy like James Nunnally, who played for the Timberwolves um, and has been lightning in Europe as a spot-up shooter and switch defender, um, but at the NBA level doesn't have the off-movement shooting and doesn't have the advanced spot-up profile that you'd really like to see. I think that Reddish kind of suffers from the same thing. We don't see him take a lot of shots off screens. We don't see him coming off-movement towards the break to be able to uh, catch and turn and shoot. He doesn't do a ton of that. A lot of his threes are stationary, which 
you know, creates a little bit of a limit for what he could be at the NBA level right now. We need to be able to see him make progression in those advanced opportunities to really be able to cut it. And again, that lack of ball handling ability really could end up being his downfall at the NBA level. If he does make some significant ball handling uh improvements i think that a median outcome for him would be something like iman shumpert but a little bit taller someone who is able to create a little bit is able to spot up reliably is able to defend across multiple positions but overall kind of gets an inflated worth when we look at nba teams teams dealing with him you know he could be a guy that ends up being a productive member of a good team in that role. But he's probably going to be a guy who is overvalued by teams who are kind of grasping at the three and D straw, looking for these guys that are very hard to come by in terms of guys who can do all of these things and execute consistently. I think that Reddish could fall into a little bit of the inconsistency that we saw with Shump. Um, And I think that as a ball handler, that's much more what he's like than kind of what he's billed as, where he could be this potential primary guy. He's much more likely to end up as a guy who makes you cringe a little bit if he's getting a lot of on-ball possessions as a ball handler. And I think the ceiling outcome kind of reflects that. I think that the ball handling really isn't going to be something that comes along for him at the NBA level in, in a meaningful way, but he could still end up being a productive player even without that. If his shooting is able to get up towards that elite level and he's able to be a defender that can provide a lot of value across multiple positions, I could see something in the realm of a Clay Thompson as his ceiling. And that's kind of why everybody has him still in the top five is the idea is that his shooting is going to continue to progress. His defense is going to continue to progress. And with his body, he could end up being that guy that is taking a lot of threes off movement and building off of a, off of a very good primary creator and providing a lot of defensive value at the point of attack. So I could really see him being at that level, but I think more likely he's going to end up being kind of in that shumper role. And I think that as we as we look at his fit on the Cavs, I think that he's in an interesting spot because I think that he's a good player in terms of roster fit. You know, he's a spot-up shooter that can play off of Colin Sexton, that can defend multiple positions, giving them a lot of versatility on the wing next to Osman. But realistically, I don't think he's the type of player you want to sink a lot of development capital in if you're the Cavs because they need that primary star type. They need a guy like Zion Williamson or RJ Barrett that can take a lot of primary scoring load and can be a guy who's going to give you a lot of value over the next five to seven years um, on both his rookie contract and his second contract. And I don't think Reddish is that guy. I think he's more likely to be a guy who comes along slowly, is able to develop into a pretty good player on a second contract, but really puts you in a tough position during the rebuild and doesn't make you significantly better. I think that that's something that is going to be kind of interesting is how you value these guys who look like they're going to be kind of elite role players versus guys who actually have some star equity and how you value Colin Sexton and Kevin Love's presence long-term compared to drafting a guy like Reddish. I think that 
he is a guy that I would steer away from. I would rather look at some of the guys who have more primary upside, like a, a Jarrett Culver or an RJ Barrett, rather than looking at, at Reddish, because I just don't think that he's going to be a guy that is going to provide much value during your actual rebuild process. Um, I think that he's going to be a guy who's much more valuable for a team that's maybe on an accelerated track, maybe a Dallas um, for example, he would be a little bit better fit um, for kind of their timeline versus uh, versus the Cavs, who are going to want to try to have him be that primary type that I just don't think that he is. So that's kind of why I have him a little bit lower on my Cavs board than most than I would for most teams and most NBA blanket mock drafts are going to have him because I just don't think that he's a good value for what the Cavs are trying to get out of their pick this year. So let's take another break here. We'll uh, come back and we'll wrap up with a quick preview of conference tournament week, um, looking at some of the major matchups that you'll want to pay attention to um, as, as we look at how the college basketball season is going to wrap up prior to the NCAA tournament. All right, and we're back. We will wrap up here talking about conference tournament week, which is going to be taking place this week. We already have one team punched in their ticket into the tournament with Murray State. A couple more teams are going to do so on Sunday, and uh, the rest of the week is going to feature a lot of the small schools and small conferences punching bids before we get to the big show of the power conferences heading into next Saturday and Sunday. So we're going to talk quickly about a couple things that we're going to look for in the power conferences and then give you five mid-majors that are worth watching throughout the week. Um, so when watching the power conference stuff, uh, three main tournaments that are going to really stick out, one being the ACC, obviously a very big chance to see Zion Williamson potentially come back after missing a few weeks with that knee sprain, he's going to be hopefully back in action as of this Sunday that we record. It looks like that's going to be the case. We'll have to see, though, but it's going to be good to see. Is he going to be healthy? Is he going to help turn Duke's fortunes around? Are they going to be able to look like the team that they looked like early in the season with him back on the court? That'll be a good test to see whether or not he's healthy as well. Um, also, looking elsewhere, the SEC tournament going to be interesting just for the fact that we're going to get another probable chance at a Kentucky-Tennessee matchup. Kentucky's the two seed there. Tennessee is the three, and that's going to give us another opportunity to see Grant Williams and P.J. Washington and Keldon Johnson, all guys who are interesting draft prospects that will probably go in the mid-first, potentially be in the mix for the Cavs with their second pick. So going to be very good to be able to get an opportunity to see those guys play there. The Pac-12 also going to be an interesting one just because of the probable chaos that's going to be there. A lot of teams in that conference that are very similar in uh, competition level and this is a league that doesn't have a lot of quality teams probably only going to be a two-bid league maybe three if Washington doesn't win the Pac-12 tournament they're probably the safe pick at this point but this tournament is probably going to matter a lot for who ends up 
coming out of the Pac-12 to make the NCAA tournament. So we obviously have some teams that are go- we're going to be pulling for. It'd be really nice to see USC go deep in this with Kevin Porter. It'd be good to get a chance to see more of Arizona State with Lugan Stort and Zylan Cheatham. Um, potentially there, Oregon with Lewis King or Stanford with Kezi Akpawa, any of those teams, we want to pull for them to make a deep run in that Pac-12 tournament, maybe even win it and give us some more draft prospects that could potentially make the tournament. There are a lot of good prospects in the Pac-12, but not a lot of good teams. So we obviously have a little bit of stake in trying to get these teams that have the good players into the tournament to get more games and more data. So those are the teams that I'll be pulling for in the Pac-12, but really probably only one of those teams outside of Washington with Matisse Thibel is going to end up making the tournament out of that conference. So that tournament is going to be very important. We'll wrap up here with five power conference or non-power conference teams to pay attention to. The first is going to be tonight. The with the final on uh, March 11th, 7 o'clock p.m., and that's going to be the Southern Conference. Southern Conference features two of my favorite mid-major prospects, um, depending on what the results are by the time that you're hearing this. One of these two teams, at least, will probably be there, uh, hopefully both. It'd be nice to see Wofford and UNC Greensboro. Wofford has Fletcher McGee, who's the best shooter in college basketball, Um a great volume three-point shooter who reminds a lot of uh, poor man's J.J. Redick um, is definitely draftable as a volume shooter, and I think is going to be is going to be a fireball in the NCAA tournament and a potential team. Uh, Wofford's a potential team that could upset somebody if he gets hot, so he's going to be a good one to watch there. Also, UNC Greensboro has a great defense. They're going to be a great matchup if they do end up playing Wofford. Uh, they're headlined by James Dickey who is a 6'9 forward, who is one of the better defenders overall in college basketball. He's kind of the linchpin to their great defense. And they play a very good NBA-style system, which is always fun to watch. So getting to see those two players play against each other is going to be uh, really good. If one of the, those two teams gets upset, then no big deal. You're still probably going to get a chance to see one of them. The Colonials, the second one to watch, their game is going to be, or their championship game is going to be on March 12th at 7 p.m. The player that I'm going to focus on there is Hofstra's Justin Wright Foreman, who is one of the best scorers in college basketball. Um, He's a guy who probably isn't going to be a draft pick this coming year, but definitely can make some noise as a summer league prospect um, that could have an outside shot at making a roster. So he's going to be really entertaining to watch, um, and we are pulling for him to make the NCAA tournament because it's great to see these small school guys that are these really high-volume scorers get a chance to do so against major uh, conference teams. So we'll get to see him potentially if they end up making it all the way through. You're pulling for Hofstra there. Also on the 12th, you get to see the West Coast Conference championship game, which is going to be a Gonzaga against somebody. Um, the important thing to watch for here is, is this a chance for Gonzaga to get a good test? Um, we haven't seen very many of those throughout the last couple months, and this is kind of the last chance that they have to kind of gear up before potentially making a deep NCAA tournament run. Um, So we want to see if anybody from the West Coast Conference, whoever they end up facing in that title game, can give them a good challenge um, before we get to the NCAA tournament. Chance to see Brandon Clark, Rui Hachimura, um, Zach Norvell, 
Killian Tilly, potentially, if he's back from injury. So several draft prospects on display there. Mountain West Tournament is going to be our fourth one. That's another one that has some several high-quality players, uh, at least a couple of whom could end up making that championship game. That's on March 16th at 6 p.m. The players to watch here for San Diego State, uh, you got Jalen McDaniels, a really strong rebounding power forward. Utah State has my guy, Nehemiah Queda, the Portuguese center who looks like Pascal Siakam. Um, they beat Nevada a couple weeks ago, who are the favorites to win that tournament. Nevada has Caleb and Cody Martin and Jordan Caroline. So three players who can potentially be draft picks here. Um so this is going to be a really good tournament to watch. At least two of those teams will probably make the uh, conference title game. And then the final one, Conference USA, um, that one we're going to be watching for Western Kentucky and Charles Bassey. Not sure that they're going to end up making the Conference USA Tournament Championship. That's on March 16th at 8.30, but going to be good to pay attention to him if you haven't yet. He's been rising up boards because he's been looking very strong as a rebounding and potentially shot blocking five at the NBA level could potentially crack his way into first round conversation. So good to get eyes on him there. Also, if Marshall ends up uh, having a good run in the tournament, you get a chance to see John Elmore, who's another guy who's probably fringe second rounder and worth watching. Um, so those five tournaments are all going to be really good here. If you're waiting for the power conference teams before Thursday, or you're kind of looking to stay away from them and watch some of these more fringe guys that uh, that's a definitely a good set of tournaments to watch. So that'll wrap us up for today. Remember, you can find the podcast on Fear the Sword, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And keep an eye out for the other podcasts on our Fear the Sword podcast network as well. Best way to support our podcast is to subscribe and leave a review, which helps more people find the podcast. Hopefully you have a good time watching the wildness of conference tournament week this week ahead of the big dance. I'll be trying to do two podcasts next week, a prospect breakdown pod. Just like this one, we'll probably be going over Jarrett Culver there. So that's going to be a, a good one uh, to, to catch. And then an NCAA tournament preview as well, where we uh, we try to break down as many of the matchups as we can and also give some thoughts on our philosophy of how you watch the NCAA tournament and how you value that from an NBA draft perspective. So be on the lookout for that, and we will catch you next week.